0: So so Thank you all for coming uh, this evening and welcome uh, to the Institute of Advanced Studies for those of you who haven't been here before. My name is Peter Leary and I'm a junior research fellow here. I'm a historian and my own research interests are in international borders and particularly in the partition of Ireland. Along with my colleague Alison Deutsch, who unfortunately can't be here with us this evening, I am organising, we are organising this this vulnerability seminar series. Vulnerability is one of two research themes here at the IAS this year and the other is lies, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, And over the course of this academic term and next we will be hearing from a wide range of speakers who will be approaching the same theme from uh, from diverse angles and disciplinary perspectives. So this is our second seminar and for those of you who Um, weren't here the last time. Uh, Two weeks ago we heard from Professor Stephen Connor from the University of Cambridge who spoke about vulnerability in the context of knowledge, stupidity and shame. (laughs) This evening we're very pleased to welcome Professor Jonathan Herring who I will introduce more fully in a moment but first of all I want to quickly highlight our next event which will be next Wednesday same time same place here at 5 p.m. Um, and we will we'll be very pleased to uh, have Dr. Kate Smith from the University of Huddersfield who will t- whose talk will be entitled Narratives of Vulnerability, Rethinking Stories um, About the Figure of the Refugee in Europe. So you're all very welcome to come along to that. I hope that um, you will. And also take a look on the IAS webpage on the event section and, and where there will be other upcoming events um, that hopefully will be of interest to you. Before that however we have this evening and it's a privilege to introduce Professor Jonathan Herring who is going to talk about vulnerability and the law. Professor Herring is the D.M. Wolf Clarendon Fellow in Law at Exeter College and Vice Dean and Professor of Law at the Faculty of Law in the University of Oxford. He has written on criminal, family and medical law. He focuses on how the law interacts with the things that matter most to us, not money, companies or insurance, but our family, our friends, our bodies. His writing questions the assumptions that we are capable, independent, self-sufficient, autonomous people who need legal rights to protect us from from the invasions of others, arguing instead that we are profoundly vulnerable and interdependent and therefore need a law which enriches and protects our relationships rather than one which promotes individual rights. He has written over 250 articles and books, including Vulnerable Adults and the Law, OUP 2017, Caring and the Law, Medical Law and Ethics, Family Law, and How to Argue, although hopefully it won't come to that. (laughs) So we're very pleased to uh, have him with you this evening, and please welcome him, Thank thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed for that uh, all introduction and thank you very much uh, everyone for coming along and it's uh, a real uh, honor to be here at the Institute now I've assumed that quite a good number of you are not lawyers so I've tried to avoid uh, any uh, legal jargon or anything that gets too technical um, but do stop me if I start uh, if I start doing so um, so just to give you the structure of what I'll be doing, um, very briefly I'll seek to provide a definition or at least some definitions uh, of vulnerability. Then I'll set out how the law currently typically uses the concept uh, of vulnerability. Uh, and then I'll look at some of the problems uh, that that has created before promoting uh, the idea of universal vulnerability, which is one um, I and, and others uh, have adopted Uh, and then explore what that would mean for the law if we were to use uh, universal vulnerability as the basis for legal intervention. Um, So, first of all, how does the law or legal documents, how do they understand um, vulnerability? Um, We've had various documents which have sought uh, to do so. Perhaps the best known uh, is a document uh, entitled No Secrets, uh, that was produced by the Department of Health uh, in 2000. Um, and it set out uh, a range of duties and obligations uh, on uh, public authorities towards vulnerable adults. Uh, so it explains a vulnerable adult is a person who is or may be in need of community care services by reason of a mental or other disability, age uh, or illness, and who is Um, or may be unable to take care of themselves, or unable to protect themselves from harm. Um, So it was tied in there to the idea of uh, disability, um, somebody having uh, a mental or other disability, or age or illness, uh, and their need to have care. Um, There was further reference to vulnerable adults in 2006, uh, with the Safeguarding Vulnerable Groups Act, um, which set out a further definition uh, of someone who was vulnerable uh, and needed protection uh, from uh, public authorities. Um, I won't go through that uh, whole list, um, but certainly it's very, very, um, uh, very, very wide. Um, someone who receives any form of health care, <laughs> you might start to wonder whether that's not uh, virtually covering. Uh, Uh, everyone. But by 2014 the concept of vulnerable adult rather fell out of favour. And when uh, the whole area of the provision of care and the duties that local authorities might owe to people in their area that had been covered by the No Secrets document um, was reformed with the Care Act um, the idea of a vulnerable adult fell out of the picture. Um, And rather, uh, there was uh, reference to people who would need services and local authority uh, providing uh, a range of services for people uh, who uh, were in need of care and support. Um, It was seen that the idea of vulnerable, but classifying people as vulnerable adults, was was seen as demeaning or had a stigmatising effect. Uh, And so, uh, less snappily, they came up with this phrase of adults in need of care uh, and support. However, just as it fell out of favour in the statute, uh, the courts reintroduced it. uh, And we'll be, be explaining a bit more about this later on. But the courts have developed a special jurisdiction for vulnerable adults, Those are people that the courts believe to be deprived of the capacity to make a decision, disabled from making a free uh, choice. But Justice Mumby, who's played a big role in developing this jurisdiction, uh, has said it's unwise to even attempt to define exactly who falls within uh, the category of a vulnerable uh, adult for this jurisdiction. Looking more generally, they're not at the terminology as such, but what the law does with vulnerability. Um, well, the approach at the moment is typically to select a group of people who are seen to be in need of, of a special legal services. Um, so, uh, one uh, form of intervention is protection. So the law might identify a particular group of people who are vulnerable to exploitation or being harmed and to then put in place legal protections. Um, So, uh, for example, under the criminal law, we have, um, uh, perhaps most notoriously, the Sexual Offences Act 2003, where we have special offences designed to protect children from sexual abuse and those with mental disorders from sexual abuse. Um, So we have the general law on sexual offences, which applies to everyone. But then we have very particular provisions, which are designed to protect uh, those groups who are seen at particular danger. Then we have legislation like the Tattooing of Minors Act, uh, the danger of children being tattooed. uh, And so that is um, outrightly prohibited. Another recent example in 2015, uh, a new offence of ill-treatment or neglect, uh, which was designed to particularly protect people in care homes uh, and in healthcare settings. Uh, after a whole series of scandals where people were abused in in, in care homes uh, and in hospitals, um, and it was felt there needed to be particular legislation uh, that was uh, protecting them. Similarly, we have the Mental Incapacity Act, which is designed to protect people who can't make decisions for themselves. They're therefore vulnerable. And need to have special legislation uh, here requiring that decisions are made in their best interests. So that's one whole set of areas of the law, and of course, I could give many other examples of where uh, the law perceives a particular group to be in danger, at risk of a particular harm, uh, and uh, legislation is enacted to protect them. Another set of responses is to identify a group that's in need of a particular kind of set of rights. Um, so children are perhaps the most obvious example of this. So under the Education Act, children have uh, the right to uh, an education. Uh, the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of a Child lists a whole set of particular rights that children have, which are not granted to adults, which are seen as particularly necessary to protect children, um, to uh, enhance children's well-being um, because um, of their vulnerability. But then we can see that elsewhere, under the Housing Act, local authorities have a particular obligation to uh, pro, uh, uh, have an obligation to provide housing needs uh, to uh, a group who are uh, designed as being in priority need. Uh, so people, people with young children, people who are pregnant, and so forth. So um, they are designed as in need of a particular kind of service. And then another way that the law can deal with vulnerable groups is commonly in the law we have cases where we're having to weigh up the rights and interests of different people. Um, And uh, in various bits of legislation, um, the courts or the decision makers were required to give a special priority to those who are seen as most vulnerable. So probably the best known example is a family case where a judge might have the interests of Typically the mother, the father, and the child, and it's weighing them all up, what or orders best. Well, section one says when you're weighing up the competing interests, the welfare of the child must be the paramount concern. The child matters more than the mother or the father. Similarly, under the Mental Capacity Act, if someone is making a decision involving someone who's lost capacity and you're looking at the different interests who might be affected, or well, the person who lacks capacity, the decision must be in their best interests. Um, So those are three sort of ways that the law, by identifying a particular group who are seen as vulnerable, are in need either of protection, given specific rights, or their interests are privileged when you're weighing up the claims uh, of competing individuals. But I think to underpinning all of that, there's an even bigger issue about what law, um, how the law imagines ourselves to be. So this will be one of my key themes. that The law is based around making rules that generally apply. And then we have exceptions that uh, we create uh, for particular groups or particular individuals. So the law is very much based around a norm of what we think um, people are or what people um, are like. Um, So, um, the law has this image of uh, the individual being uh, autonomous. Um, So, the... um, That's not the right slide. I beg your pardon. (laughs) I'll come back to that one later on. Um, So, the the law has this image of an individual who is self-sufficient, Uh, An individual who's able to make decisions for themselves, is able to look after themselves. Um, A person who is able to, uh, uh, doesn't require the assistance of others. So we see in the law, privileging of a certain set of rights that are what you would want if you were such a person. So rights of autonomy. The government should stay away from you. Uh, You should be left alone so that you can make decisions for yourself follow your goals for what you want your life to be. So autonomy is one of the key goals. Similarly, uh, the idea of privacy, people, again, should should be kept away so that you should be free from interference. So the norm around which uh, many legal interventions and many legal rights are based are essentially laws about keeping other people away from you. You don't need other people, you don't want other people stopping you doing things, and the law then gives you these rights to keep other people separate from you. Um, And often when uh, you have laws dealing with vulnerable groups, they are the exception. The vulnerable group can't look after itself. It needs somebody to come in to have special protection. So the vulnerable group is seen as an exception to the norm an exception to the normal uh, law that we use. And underpinning many legal interventions is this idea that vulnerability is a bad thing. You don't want to be vulnerable. So the aim of many interventions is to try and rescue you from vulnerability, to put you in a position where you can now be independent and self-sufficient. The goal we're seeking is to restore you back to our legal, legal norms. So, to make sure that you can get capacity to make decisions, uh, that you are uh, self-sufficient. So, vulnerability is commonly presented then as an undesirable characteristic which the law might need to uh, help you overcome. So, what are some of the problems with that way of acting, um, of identifying particular groups as vulnerable? Where well, there are a whole set of problems that can arise. One is quite obviously paternalism. So the law will say to a particular group or individual, you are um, vulnerable and we, uh, therefore, you're not in a position to look after yourself. We're going to decide uh, what to do for you. Um, so some of the child rights advocates claim that that's how children are too often treated as being uh, incapable and paternalistic decisions are made for them. It can also very easily lead to moralism. That a group who are seen as behaving uh, improperly are seen as being vulnerable. Um, so it's a common theme in the debates over sex work, for example. Whether or not the law's categorization of sex workers as vulnerable uh, is or is not uh, an example of uh, moralism. Perhaps even worse is by setting out groups over there who are vulnerable, we're trying to pretend that we aren't. We try and promote the idea that we are self-sufficient and independent. So the norm of not being vulnerable is enhanced in the law by setting up these different groups. Those people over there are vulnerable, they over there are vulnerable, but we are okay, we are uh, not vulnerable. But also, it means that we can, or that the law is prone to locate the source of vulnerability within the individual. That is a vulnerable person there. or There are a group of vulnerable people there, with the implication being that it's some kind of weakness or failing in them that's made them vulnerable. And that can then disguise the way that Socioeconomic forces, environmental forces have actually rendered them vulnerable. So, when we say, for example, oh, children are particularly vulnerable, we might uh, imagine that, that it's something within children that's making them vulnerable, whereas, in fact, what might be making them vulnerable is the behaviour of adults um, or the distribution of socioeconomic forces. So, the language of vulnerability typically then Identifies the vulnerability as a failure of the individual, and that can then escape the true responsibility for the difficulties they're facing. And typically, then, vulnerability involves stereotyping, Um, that a category of individuals are labelled as being vulnerable. So, the disabled, that's a vulnerable group, and we saw in the No Secrets definition, or children. Uh, as a group who are vulnerable. It can also create uh, a narrative which itself is endangering. So I've written in relation to children that um, there's an irony that by saying to children, oh, you're particularly vulnerable, you're not really able to look after yourself, so you must therefore listen to adults and obey adults and do what they say because they know what's good for you, actually, in a sense, is, generates a whole set of extra vulnerabilities uh, for children, that if children become dependent upon adults and utterly obedient to adults, that itself can be a source of vulnerability. So I'm to argue now in favour of a different understanding of vulnerability, that rather than identifying particular groups of people as being vulnerable. Uh, We should rather acknowledge universal vulnerability. So the idea of uh, universal vulnerability, um, as Rogers and others have said, all human life is conditioned by vulnerability. Uh, It is the result of our embodied finite and socially contingent existence. And I'll be unpacking some of those uh, ideas shortly. So the claim is then that we're all in our nature vulnerable, but it's not right to separate out the vulnerable people there and us being not vulnerable. So Martha Feynman has been perhaps the most influential writer in legal circles (coughs) who has written uh, about this. And she explains that throughout our lives, we may be subject to different external and internal, negative, potentially devastating events over which we have no control. That's just the nature of our lives. Um, We live, um, we are situated beings, she writes, with the ever-present possibility of changing needs and circumstances. But also, she argues that we are given by society different sets of qualities and resources, So although we might be all universally vulnerable, we're given different resources to cope with that vulnerability by society. So some people, therefore, may be better able to cope with their vulnerability or have greater resilience. But those are a response not of anything inherent in the person, but how the state and the law has distributed resources. So Mackenzie, Rogers and Dodds have explored that a little bit more, that there's the inherent vulnerability that we all have, but that then there might be situational vulnerability, which is caused by personal, social, political, economic and environmental situations. Or there may be pathological vulnerability, which arises from abusive relationships or socio-political injustice. So the claim that we're all vulnerable is not necessarily saying that we're all experiencing vulnerability in the same way because resources and resilience are allocated uh, by society in different ways. But it's claim we're all in our essence, our our nature is as vulnerable people. Um, And um, just to unpack that then a little bit more, Uh, In what sense are we all vulnerable? Well, first of all, our bodies are all um, vulnerable. Our bodies are, in their nature, flaky, frail things. Bits of our bodies are constantly falling off. New bits are growing. Uh, The idea of the body as being a self-contained static entity is simply untrue in biological terms. And don't want you to make you feel unwell, but when you leave this room uh, this evening, uh, you will be a little bit less you than when you arrived and a little bit more the people around you uh, than when you were. Our bodies are in fact constantly changing uh, and interacting. Um, That picture is from uh, inside a human body. Uh, and it captures that actually our bodies, we don't like to think of ourselves as, as all me or all my body, but actually there are a whole range of different viruses and organisms and different uh, external things that live inside our bodies. Um, and I wrote a, a piece with Chow, who's a, who's a medical doctor, that explored all the different kinds of organisms that goes on in your body, and I really wish I hadn't, uh, hadn't found that all out. Um, but, <laughs> um, So our bodies are in their nature, frail things um, that are, of course, destined ultimately for death. We're also profoundly dependent upon other people. Um, I think it's remarkable when we talk about disability, we often talk about special accommodations being made for somebody with disabilities that We put in a special effort so that someone who's disabled can do the same things um, that able-bodied people can do. But what's often overlooked with that is all of the accommodations that so-called able-bodied people need as well. So if you've got to get up to the first floor, however able-bodied you are, you're not going to get up to the first floor unless there's some kind of accommodation. You need the steps, you need the stairs, or you might need a lift. But we all need something to get us up to the first floor we might like to think of ourselves as being independent and not needing services but we all need supermarkets we need people who grow food we need people to transport things um, in fact if we did away if you were uh, suddenly woke up tomorrow morning and you were the only person on the planet um, i imagine most of us would enormously struggle to survive for very long we're constantly using social resources uh, services from each other to meet even our most uh, basic needs for food uh, and water. So as Martha Feynman uh, has argued, um, uh, society has created a whole set of systems that play uh, a crucial role in lessening, ameliorating and compensating our vulnerability.
2: Um,
1: And it's not just our physical needs, but it's our psychological needs um, as well. So this develops the idea of um, the relational self. Again, we like to imagine that we have our own ideas uh, and we have uh, our sense of who we are. But in fact, from our very beginnings, our sense of who we are comes out of our relationships with other people. Um, Those um, who raise us as babies give us the words that we use to make sense of each other and who we are. Those people define themselves and understand themselves in terms of their relationships uh, to other people. Um, And that's why things like bereavement and relationship breakdown are some of the very worst things that people experience, because our relationships are absolutely key to, to who we are and who our identity is. But that creates a vulnerability, because our relationships are so important to our emotional and psychological well-being They can be used against us. They can be used to harm us. The relationships can end. And that's one of the great evils of domestic abuse, that you have a relationship that should be used to uphold your sense of value, to feel treasured in, and then it's being used to actually undermine your sense of self-worth. So because we are, in our nature, relational beings, uh, that creates uh, a vulnerability. And it flows from that then that our caring relationships are absolutely key. They're (coughs) fundamental to us. We have to have caring relationships for our own psychological sense uh, and for our own uh, physical and emotional well being. But if our relationships then are so, our caring relationships are so deeply enmeshed into who we are, that challenges some of those core legal concepts of. Uh, the individual self and individual rights. The idea of the law being about me keeping other people away, about protecting my autonomy and my privacy um, and my bodily integrity, doesn't work if in the reality it's our relationships which are fundamental to who we are. Universal uh, vulnerability theorists often also make the point that actually vulnerability is fantastic. Uh, It's presented in the media as it's really bad to be vulnerable. You want to escape from vulnerability. Um, But actually quite the opposite. It's a great feature of being human that we can't just do things on our own. We can't survive on our own because it requires us to reach out to others. It requires us to form relationships so that we can do things together. Some of the great virtues of beneficence and compassion uh, er- uh, arise from and, and are enabled by our vulnerability. Um, so we have to then become open to others. We have to work with others. That'll mean we have to change and um, respond to others. So that means our lives, our understanding of ourselves are changing. It requires us to have relationships of intimacy uh, and trust. We have to develop and find Cooperative solutions together. We have to be creative in finding new ways uh, of living together. So, far from our vulnerability being something bad that we need to, to flee from, it's something that we should embrace and work together uh, to find solutions to the issues we face. So We like, then, to imagine ourselves, and the law encourages us to think of ourselves as competent and self-sufficient and independent. Um, But I think we deceive ourselves if we see ourselves in that way. We're puffing ourselves up to think, oh, I can make my own decisions. I'm independent. I can do this all on my own. And as Tom Shakespeare has written about Um, disability. He argues that non-disabled people project their fear of death uh, and their unease at their physicality and mortality onto disabled people who represent those difficult aspects of human existence. And I wonder whether that's a little bit of what's happening with vulnerable groups. We say, oh, look at those poor people over there, those poor vulnerable people, and we can try and disguise and pretend uh, that we're not vulnerable. An interesting example of this, I read recently, a book called Toxic Childhood, uh, where it highlights the terrible risks to children's mental health, the toxic climate of dieting, pornography and stress. Uh, But um, surely those very issues are plaguing adults as well, uh, just as much uh, as childhood. Um, So a lot of the, the, the writing in recent years about the terrible things that are happening to children... You could make exactly the same points about adults. It's not some special thing about children where the problems um, are arising. Okay, so what would be the implications then for the law if we were to move to uh, 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 universal vulnerability? So first of all, as I've already mentioned, it would give us a new norm, a new image of the self Uh, around which to base our legal regulation. So the current one, which is based on independence and capacitus and rationality, and the rights of autonomy, bodily integrity, privacy, liberty, those kinds of rights, um, would would have to be replaced. So at the moment, uh, the law sees the vulnerable people as those who are not able to fit to that norm. So Martha Feynman's argued that the vulnerable subject needs to replace the autonomous and independent <coughs> subject. Um, and She argues that if we base our norm about vulnerability, that will be much far closer to the actual experience uh, that people have. So similarly, Susan Dodds argues that uh, paying attention to vulnerability. Changes people's ethical uh, relations towards each other. So suddenly, rather than saying, "Well, I've got rights that I can enforce against you," if we're all vulnerable, we should start be talking about, "Well, I have responsibilities towards you as a fellow vulnerable person, and you've got responsibilities to try and take care of me." Um, that we shift from uh, talking about uh, uh, trying to keep people away, as I've said, to try and uh, bring people together so here are some of the consequences then that responsibility to meeting needs will become a key obligation of the state uh, and a key obligation of each other um, that relationships should become the key in legal uh, discourse that we should be aiming to promote caring relationships rather uh, than individual Um, rights but fourthly it enables us also to locate uh, and seek to identify why um, we're not equally experiencing vulnerability Um, why is it i was saying earlier that some people are given the resources they need to meet uh, their um, uh, (coughs) vulnerabilities and others are lacking them Um, Now, I've explored uh, some more of the practical implications of of how that thinking might look in uh, my book. Um, But I wanted to develop just one particular, give you one particular example. Uh, And it's an example of the case law where I think the courts are beginning to accept this um, concept of universal vulnerability. Because I know it can sound a bit like it's sort of pie in the sky. Um, But here's an example of where the courts have have begun to uh, use it, um, although they could do so a bit more. So it's the distinction between capacity and non-capacity, which I'll explore in just a moment. So behind this is this idea of autonomy, which is so important uh, to traditional uh, law, Um, very well captured by Isaiah Berlin, and it's, it's a view that many people at first will, will, uh, will, will readily agree with. So Berlin writes I wish my life and decisions to depend on myself, not on external forces of whatever kind. I want to be the instrument of my own, not of other men's act of will. I wish to be a subject, not an object. I wish to be moved by reasons, by conscious purposes, which are my own, not by causes which affect me, as it were, from the outside. So that kind of feeling, I want to be in charge of myself. I don't want other people telling me what to do. Um, I want to be free to to do what I think is best for me. Um, And that idea, that idea of autonomy, uh, as I said earlier, is strongly protected um, by the law. And it sounds fine, uh, and it sounds very, very good and worthy in that kind of formulation. But once we dig into it, I think it becomes problematic. Um, so Jesse Wall, uh, who explores the idea of autonomy, has suggested, well, as, as explained, and, and everyone would agree with this, that not you can't all exercise autonomy. To be able to have autonomy, you've got to have the capacity to be autonomous. Um, Uh, And he suggests three things. So first of all, you have to be free from undue influence or the influence of others. Because if if you're under the influence of others and you're just making decisions because other people are sort of forcing you to or influencing you to, then we're not with um, Berlin's ideal. It is others who are making decisions for you. Um, So in order to... We only respect the decisions then of people where it is genuinely their choice that they're not being... Uh, influenced one way or the other and secondly uh, Jesse says well this only applies to people who are capable of rational thought and cognition that they're able to understand the situation they're in and they're able to act rationally because again otherwise you're not making the decision uh, uh, you're not actually making the decision Um, so if you go to the doctor and say well I'd like those green pills because they'll make me better and in fact, the green pills won't make you better at all. We won't be respecting your autonomy by giving you the green pills, because where you'll end up, you'll end up ill, which is where you don't want to be. But autonomy is all about you directing your life, deciding where you would like to be. So someone has to be able to know the facts, and maybe you have to be able to use them rationally. Um, because again, the problem is if people are not using the facts rationally, we can be in a a difficult position. Um, So, um, because um, if with autonomy, we're wanting them to write their own life story to decide where they would want to be. So there's a really difficult case recently uh, about a woman who uh, befriended a man who had been abusive to every woman he had ever had a relationship with. In fact, he'd uh, just come out of prison having had a string of uh, abusive relationships. She was convinced he was the nicest man in the world. Um, uh, She wanted to move in with him, and uh, she was uh, convinced that uh, it would be tea and crumpets every day um, and that they'd have a lovely life. Um, She had learning difficulties, but not such as to mean that she lacked um, mental capacity. But it's very difficult to know what respecting her autonomy means in that case. Um, Although she had been told he had this string of convictions, she was convinced this would she would be fine but everyone who knew him all the experts were convinced he would continue his abuse so you might say oh well when she says she wants to live with him let's respect her decision to do that but her decision is to enter into a relationship which is loving and kind Um, and that's she's not that's not going to be what's going to happen as far as we can tell so it's, it's, it, becomes, it gets very difficult then to respect autonomy if someone's making a decision which is not based on the real facts or is not based um, on uh, rationality. And thirdly, Jesse says that we must, um, uh, that someone to be autonomous must be acting in accordance to beliefs, commitments uh, that the person <coughs> identifies as their own and have accepted as their own. Not just beliefs or commitments that other people have given to them. Not just beliefs they've assumed because that was the way they were brought up. And I think Jesse's right. That is what you would probably need for someone genuinely to be making. The kind of decision uh, where you are directing your own life and writing your own life story. But then, as Jesse says, there are very, very few people who would actually meet uh, those Uh, criteria. So Sarah Connolly has written uh, of uh, the many, many studies on decision making, uh, and people are just terrible (laughs) at making uh, decisions. Um, She gives a lovely example of um, chips uh, and ordering the the extra big portion of chips. Uh, And she says, I keep ordering the extra big portion of chips, and I eat them, and then I think I didn't want the extra big portion of chips. Why did I ask for those? I know I don't want them, but just at the time I said I did, but I know I really didn't, and yet somehow I said yes. I think that sort of captures this feeling. This is a typical example where you might make a decision, but actually it's not really what you wanted. Somehow it just, it just comes out, um, and yet it doesn't really reflect uh, where you want your life to go or what you want your life to be. Um, So she writes, we suffer from all of these cognitive biases, uh, irrational decision-making, skewed thinking, uh, which end up making ineffective decisions. Now turning to the law, the law at the moment draws a sharp distinction between people who are assessed as having mental capacity uh, and those who are not. If you're assessed as making mental capacity, well, you can decide um, what to do. So in that case I was mentioning earlier, once the court had decided, well, she has mental capacity, she and she wants to move in with her, and she had to be free to make that decision as a matter of law, even though it's a matter of uh, um, ethics and autonomy, it was much harder. So if you have got capacity, then you're left to make the decision. But if you have not got capacity, then uh, others can make decisions for you, Uh, Based on an assessment of what's in your best interests. Um, And the law presumes you have capacity. So the starting point is you have capacity. Um, Now, that model where you've just got the two groups, the two box model, a binary model, those who are capacitors and those who are not capacitors, um, has begun to come uh, under challenge uh, in the courts. So in a case called DL, uh, an elderly couple were living with uh, their son, who was abusive to them. Uh, He kept them uh, largely locked up in the house. Uh, He controlled their money. He prevented them seeing people. Um, uh, And um, um, there was some slightly rough treatment, but not serious physical violence. Um, but there was uh, certainly a, a lot that was concerning their social workers, and they had to be assessed by a psychiatrist. He assessed them both as the, the psychiatrist said it's a borderline case. They are really quite dominated by the son, but they're still able to think through issues. And both of them, both the couple, wanted to stay with their son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the psychiatrist assessment was this is a close call, but just about capacitors. Now, before this decision, you would have expected the courts to say, well, if they've got capacity, we have to respect it. We have to leave them uh, where they are. Um, But the Court of Appeal didn't. Uh, uh, Somehow, uh, as if by magic, uh, they said, no, we do have jurisdiction to protect these people. uh, And they used this uh, inherent jurisdiction for vulnerable adults. So essentially what they created is the idea that someone might have capacity but have their capacity uh, uh, impaired uh, or disabled from giving a free and genuine consent. Um, So as I said earlier, uh, Justice Mumby didn't want to define exactly who this group would be, but it's people where the call about capacity is, uh, is borderline. In that case, the court can make an order to protect them, even though they've been assessed as having capacity. So, in this case, they could be removed from their son, even though they wanted to stay with him, uh, and uh, uh, because that was uh, necessary in their best interests. Um, so, a later case uh, gives us examples of the sorts of things uh, which might uh, mean that someone, uh, although they technically have capacity, can't properly exercise it. Um, and you'll see there's a long uh, list of factors which the court might use to say, well, even though you've got capacity, uh, we're going to say you're a vulnerable adult uh, and interfere in your decision. Now, the courts um, in the DL case, which uh, I mentioned, were very aware that people would say, you're interfering with autonomy. You should allow this couple to make this decision. They want to stay with their son. You should let them do that. Um, But they argued, in fact, they were enhancing autonomy. By taking the couple away from the son's influence, they were freeing them to make the decision using their own values rather than just parroting what the son said. Um, So you can see there the difficulty, again, about what respecting autonomy uh, means here. Um, So the court said uh, the recurrent situation is bad for them. They are suffering harm removing them from him will actually enhance uh, and magnify uh, their um, uh, decision. So it seems then the position that we've reached is where people fall in this category of vulnerable adults, Um, so where their decision is unclear, uh, they're being affected by one of those kinds of factors. If it's really necessary, it would be really good for them, uh, then the court will intervene. Uh, sometimes uh, that might mean to remove someone to a particular, uh, uh, away from a particular, sorry, to a particular institution. Um, there's one other case which I just mentioned uh, there, which was a, a, a nice case recently of uh, a woman in a care home who somehow got on the internet and booked herself a cruise. <laughs> um, and she was interviewed by her social workers uh, and she'd seen a couple of pictures and thought it looked nice. Um, but she didn't really understand very much about uh, what the cruise was going to be like. She didn't know where it was going to go or anything like anything like that. Um, so it was brought to court, um, and the judge decided she was in this vulnerable adult category. She sort of uh, she just about understood. She knew it was a cruise, and she knew it was a boat. So she sort of understood the key facts. So she had capacity, but it was really quite borderline. But the judge said, "Oh, she'll have a great time." basically. <laughs> a bit more complicated than that. Um, but it wasn't a case where she was a vulnerable adult and was going to make a decision which was going to be harmful to her. She was making a decision which she'd, she'd probably enjoy it. And therefore, she, her decisions should be respected. Whereas in the DL case I was mentioning, leaving them with the abusive son would probably not have enhanced uh, their well-being. So we've moved away from the two-box approach by saying, well, look, if you're you're in the box with capacity, but you're impaired in your capacity, then we might interfere with that decision if we think it's a bad decision. And we've also had cases then uh, the other side uh, of uh, the borderline. So Y Valley was a man who um, was, was seriously ill, medical treatment was needed, and we'll go into the details, um, uh, but he refused. And he refused on the basis that the spirits and fairies had told him no. Um, now, he was a man who'd always listened to spirits and fairies and sometimes the Virgin Mary who appeared to him, um, and he'd lived his life um, in listening and following their advice, always. Um, now, perhaps not surprisingly, he was found to lack capacity But what is very notable is the judge took a strong line saying, well, he lacks capacity, but we still need to listen to him. We still need to hear what he's saying uh, and respect his decision. Um, And although there was the treatment that was proposed by the doctors would have saved his life, the court said it was going to be a dubious quality of life. He was going to have to spend lots of time connected to various machines. It was going to be quite intrusive. and the judge said that just because someone's lack capacity, it's not an off switch for his rights, uh, uh, his rights and freedoms. And the wishes and beliefs and values of someone with a mental disability are as important to them as anyone else. And he's quite clear what the fairies and spirits have told him. I think quite important to this case was that this was a man whose whole life He'd listened to the fairies and spirits. So this wasn't someone who perhaps was normally used a different form of decision-making and then an illness had changed him. This was just how he'd always been. As the judge put it, it was um, trying to imagine him without listening to the spirits and fairies was like trying to imagine an unmusical Mozart. You couldn't, couldn't really do it. So here we've got a case saying, well, look, if you're in the incapacity box, we're still going to respect your autonomy. So, it seems to me we're gradually moving to uh, an approach which I've advocated, which is to be balancing autonomy and harm. Um, So, rather than just assuming, well, either you've got autonomy or you haven't, um, that we recognise autonomy can be different weights and different strengths, that we've all got it to impairments in our autonomy uh, in different ways. Um, So... I think of it like a, a pair of scales. You've got on the one hand, how richly autonomous is the decision? And then on the other side of the scale, how harmful this decision is going to be? And the more harm that's going to be done, the more richly autonomous you need to show the decision is going to be. Uh, the less harm that's involved, like going on the cruise, a more impaired autonomy uh, can, can, can carry the day. Um, so to conclude... Um, First of all, uh, being vulnerable is great. We should all uh, rejoice and celebrate our vulnerability. It requires us to reach out to others and to work together. Um, I've argued that we need to rethink uh, legal policy and legal interventions around a norm of vulnerability um, rather than a norm of independence and self-sufficiency. And thirdly, uh, in particular, uh, that caring relationships should be uh, the ultimate goal. We need a law which encourages uh, and uh, enables caring relationships to flourish rather than one that seeks to promote individual freedom or individual rights. Um, an emphasis, a recognition of our mutual vulnerability, which means, will mean recognising the duties that we owe each other, uh, will become a key legal theme. And thirdly, it requires us to rethink why some people experience vulnerability particularly intensely and others don't. Um, But uh, it's not something particularly wrong with them. It's the way society has distributed its power, which leaves some people uh, more uh, intensely experiencing vulnerability than others. So thank you very much indeed for for listening.
0: Thank you very much for that. very... uh soft provoking talk i'm going to um open it up for for questions and comments i suppose just to um maybe pose uh something myself i mean certainly i, I suppose i find the idea that we are all vulnerable uh, and and we should all embrace our, our vulnerability very um appealing in some respects but i suppose i wondered whether well, I mean, this probably reflects my background a little bit, but, but, but what about people's vulnerability or sense of vulnerability to the law? And if we blur the boundaries about when the law has the right to intervene, or to, which seem to be what you were saying, that we should blur these boundaries, we shouldn't have a clear binary and so on, um, does that not risk making people feel more vulnerable, more precarious, more um, at risk that they don't know at what point the law might take away their freedom or take away their rights in various ways. Yeah, so I, I realise the real
1: danger in what I've been saying, that that would just lead to paternalism. Yeah, it just leads to the judges saying, right, everybody's vulnerable so we can decide for everyone. But judges <laughs> have to recognise their vulnerability too. Doctors have to recognise their vulnerability too. Um, So if we accept the idea that actually all of our decision-making is is impaired and flawed in different ways, that's just as true for a judge or just as true for a doctor. Um, So it means the doctor must be very wary about saying to a patient, well, I know better than you and I'm going to to tell you what to do because you're vulnerable. Because the doctor should be recognising their own vulnerability as well. So I don't think it leads to a sort of heavy-handed paternalism because it means nobody's in a position to say... I, I know better than you. Um, it's more going to be, well, look, I'm, I'm just as vulnerable and ignorant and confused about this as you are, but let's see if there's a way we can work together to find uh, a solution. So it's a very different kind of law. You know, we're used to the idea of the judge saying, like, this is what's going to happen, you've got to do that. It's a law that involves sort of coming alongside people.
2: Okay, so lots of hands. Tamara. Um, Thank
3: you so much really thought-provoking. I, just, I wanted to stretch you a little bit about in this, great, this great, wonderful, egalitarian universe <laughs> in which everybody is equally vulnerable, which is, of course, an incredibly attractive idea in many ways, um, and, and, and does counter many assumptions of hierarchies, etc. within the social, which, which is extremely attractive. But I wonder whether it doesn't, uh, at the same time, um, belie the real political inequalities mm-hmm. that frame us so how do you at the same time acknowledge the political inequalities and work to protect the rights of those who are genuinely less well represented and served by the law? Yeah. Um, you know, at, at the same time as understanding that, that, yes, at the level of the psychic, at the level of the corporeal, at the level of, you know, all these other things, we are vulnerable. How do you get that balance?
1: Right? Well, and I think it's, it's that third point. So it's a a recognition that although we're all equally vulnerable, society has distributed its resources uh, of um, economics, but also social resources, access to services and so forth, unequally. Um, And so although um, uh, traditionally we might say, well, those people there are vulnerable, let's say disabled people, are vulnerable because of their disability. Something in them that's rendered them vulnerable if we're recognising we're all vulnerable, we're saying, well, actually, the way we've redistributed resources in society have meant those particular people uh, are vulnerable. It's how... Um, so, and so I think it, it actually offers a way to, to challenge those very inequalities you're, you're highlighting. Um, but, I mean, again, that's, that's if it's properly understood, and I, I'm very alert to the, the danger that misapplied uh, or sort of oversimplified... It, it it can lead to it can lead to a danger.
0: Okay, I see lots of people have got university. Awesome. Um, thank you for the talk, really
4: interesting. Uh, I was struck by your mention of sex work and legislation mm. around it as as being a kind of um sort of creative moralism as a, as a branch of the problems mm. that come from thinking thinking about um, vulnerability. And I actually, so I do some work with English Collective prostitutes and we campaign with decriminalization, etc. Mm. And one of the things that we come across a lot in our research and our work is that vulnerability might actually be used as a, as a kind of arm um, of state violence in a way, because, it, you know, ironically and terribly, it's the vulnerability that the Home Office, for example, associates with sex workers, and white sex workers in particular, that then makes them more mm-hmm. vulnerable yeah. to those things things like laws that don't don't get them don't
5: get us work um together right. and brand them's premises together. So I was
2: wondering if it's not just moralism that can be associated with sex working volume but also state violence as well. Yeah I think you're right.
1: You can and, and there perhaps be quite a lot of examples where you might have people who are who are classified uh, as, um, for example, mental illness might, might well be another example of where you get quite a lot of state power exercised over people of, who are mentally ill, who are then detained under the Mental Health Act and so forth because they're classified as being uh, a particular danger uh, and, and need therefore the state's help. Um, but you're right, that, that can then appear as being uh, an exercise of force.
3: So important this idea of universal vulnerability coupled with the recognition of political inequity that Tamara has uh, pointed out yeah. in, in healthcare, medicine, uh, law, but politics generally. So thank you. Um, so I have two comments and a question. I was very um, glad as the recent editor of project at the International mm-hmm. Journal of Fitness Bioethics to see you refer to the work of Lindy Rogers Petra and Catherine McKinsey. So I just want to recommend to Special issue that we did on vulnerability, IJF 5.2, that came out in 2012, is yeah, really a very good. comprehensive analysis uh, of a concept, particularly in the relationship to health care. And with regard to your allusion to the ontology of vulnerability, I would recommend Margaret Children's classic 1997 book, mm-hmm. Leaky Volumes. Mm-hmm. She's really the first person who tries to give us a good ontology of vulnerability. Of the team. But my question has to do with your critique of autonomy. Uh, and I wonder if we can't rethink autonomy in a way that would answer to some of the concerns that you have. And I'm thinking particularly here of feminists like Anne Donchin and Sarah Ruddick who argue for an idea of relational autonomy, in which autonomy is not the property of an individual, it's not the exercise of an individual. Capacity that emerges in the context of particular kinds of relationships, mothering, education, teens, and, and so on. So, the question about autonomy is not is someone infringing upon my autonomy, mm. but rather what's the implication of this choice mm. for the nexus of relationships which actually promote mm. and sustain agency? Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. I, I completely, completely agree with that. and... Um, I've actually written a book called Relational Autonomy and Family Law, which, which seeks to apply precisely the thinking that you're suggesting, not in uh, medicine, but in relation to families. Um, and, and, and I'm very much. Yes, yes. That's all right. No, not, not at all. Not at all. No, it's. Uh, but no, so I've, I've read, and, and your two recommendations I very much echo. Um, just one more, the slightly different point on autonomy. But I just wonder what this thinking means, that the reasons why we respect people's choices, um, that we might still have a way of respecting people's choices, not, though, rooted in autonomy. Um, So it might be just sort of respect for a fellow human being and sort of ideas of liberty that might still justify us listening to people and wanting to to respect their choices, but we don't need to tie that to autonomy. And that's something I'm exploring a little bit more about, ways about how we can... uh, respect the decision someone's made, but not necessarily on the basis that it's about them choosing their life story. And I think um, certainly using the relational autonomy writing will be um, a way of doing that. Oh, yeah. I I have a couple. Hmm. It's an old idea of political
6: philosophy that power is And so there's a clear sense in which we're all vulnerable, but I can't quite wrap my head around the idea that it follows from that and social stuff, particularly, that we're all equally vulnerable. Some of us are less vulnerable I, I scarcely see how it could be otherwise. <laughs> Power is distributed, as you note, in various unequal ways that allow people to leverage not only you know, affect, affection yeah. as a kind of power, that more people. Some people have more others in a way that makes them more robust mm-hmm. against the kind of invasions yeah. which others involve. Yeah. No, no, no,
1: no. I completely agree. I didn't, I didn't mean to suggest otherwise. I think we're all in our nature equally vulnerable. We're all inherently vulnerable. But then the way resources are distributed in society will mean that some people will have much better resilience against their vulnerability, will be much better positioned to deal with it than others. So a very obvious example is um, um, being prone to, to, to illness or disease. So person A in one country might be equally prone to a disease as person B in another country, but in country A you've got medication aplenty and they just hit the pill and they're fine. Person in country B, there's no medication available for that illness and it severely impacts upon them. They might be in their nature both vulnerable to catching the condition, but the way resources are distributed worldwide will mean one person is, has been privileged to be able to deal with the illness which another person hasn't. Was, it, was that, was that, was that, does that meet your
6: that, that clarifies something for me. Yeah, and it would still then be the case you and I existing in the same society, covered by the same NHS, right. uh, with access to the same health care. I can be less vulnerable to you, who is in your compromise. You're not naturally this uh, equal to our vulnerability, even under the same.
1: Well, I, th- I think then we, we get questions about how we distribute health resources to meet the different needs that, that we might have.
6: Right, you have claims that we have health resources, health resources based on your legal health, 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 health
2: status,
6: right? Yeah. That's certainly true.
1: Sure. But if we then provide those services that I need, right. my, my, my needs would then be met. If we decide not to, then that's made me, made me vulnerable because. But
6: in a way that makes you vulnerable to the provision of.
1: I suppose then it's, it's, it's the identifying of, of what's generated the vulnerability in that scenario. Is it inherent within the body or is it the, the provision of needs by, by society? And, and I, I see how you can see it either way. <laughs> That's a fair point. Okay, I've got two more Yeah, sorry. I, I should, that's a really good question. I should have made that clear. I was I was writing primarily from a Western European perspective, particularly English law, and I no, so I wasn't purporting to suggest. I'm like, not in a position to suggest that all legal systems are of that of that nature. <coughs> Um not, not pre- precisely, um, not that I can think of it off the top of my head, but I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure I could with more, more time to think through that. But um, yeah, I haven't done an so international comparison of how different, different jurisdictions respond to bondage. well I think we're certainly it's interesting that there are different branches of the law which are more sort of open to this than others so something like <coughs> medical law and family law are much more open I think to this kind of analysis as opposed to like commercial law uh, and contract law um, so in my, in my book I wrote a chapter on contract law and what, what contract law would look like if it was based on the assumption everyone was vulnerable because at the moment, our contract law is all designed on you trying to get as much money uh, out of the, uh, the, the person you're selling to as you, as you can. So there's this key legal principle, if, like, if I'm selling you my car, I don't need to tell you it's a load of junk, I can charge as much as I like. And as long as I don't lie, um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm protected. But we might imagine a law which would be based on, on on a vulnerable norm, where I'd need to disclose to you information that you need to know to make a good decision. I'd have duties to make sure you weren't disadvantaged or exploited by the contract. It'd be a very different kind of contract law, um, and we're a long way from that. But I think certainly there's um, uh, there's moves in in medical and family law, particularly, that would be much more open to to this kind of thinking.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Back there, yeah, and then no, first and then you. Um, um, I just wanted maybe you could say
4: a little bit more about why you've gone for the language of vulnerability and not say interdependence. I think you've probably got a
1: good reason, why I just wanted to say more about that. I think those are just sort of s- so tied in together. Um, that, that it's partly because because of our interdependency that that makes us vulnerable, and it's because we're vulnerable we become interdependent. Um, so I'm not, I, I suppose vulnerability is the tag, but perhaps underneath that there's a whole set of themes about relationality and interdependence and the value of care, which I think are all all actually part of one of, of, of one parcel. Um, I could have could have probably given. Very similar lecture called Interdependence or the Importance of Caring Relationships. Um, But for this series, it's about vulnerability. (laughs) So uh,
0: (laughs) that is slightly unfair. We chose vulnerability. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you very much for the paper. It was really interesting. I was wondering what are the implications of your talk on vulnerability, especially autonomy, on
3: individual responsibility, especially in the
1: criminal context? Do you think, yes? Yeah. So I think um, you're you're right. I think it would would very much challenge the assumptions in criminal law that um, I'm responsible for my actions and only responsible for my actions and not responsible uh, for other people and other people can't be held responsible for me. Uh, And it would explore the way that um, people uh, are held accountable in the law irrespective of their. Vulnerability. So let me just give you one example. Um, the failure to protect legislation created an offence whereby if somebody was the parent of a child and they knew there was someone else in the household who was not um, who was abusing the child, they had a duty to report that. And if they didn't and the child was killed, they would be um, they could be imprisoned for failing to alert the authorities. Uh, and I did a study of the cases which were prosecuted under that and nearly every, well, all, of the, all of the ones I found were victims of domestic abuse who were prosecuted for not reporting the abuser who was abusing not only them but their children as well. But that's I think a really powerful example of where the norm that you should have been um, sort of strong enough and able to go and report to the authorities what uh, your partner was doing. is a complete failure to appreciate the experience of, of, of domestic abuse. Um, that's just just one example of um, of where it might be relevant in criminal. And you do think it might
4: have quite relevant uh, implications implication also on the
1: legal that Yes, I think that's provided that there yeah.
5: is. provided that there is a story about this, well, the similarly
4: to what we were saying before. So do we need a story about the specific vulnerability of that person? Or is just the kind of conjecture that vulnerability is a trait human nature of
2: that? Well I mean it
1: certainly involves an acknowledgement of, talking about interdependence, that criminal activity is is a product not just of one person's will and choice. Uh, We've all got responsibilities about the nature of our society and our communities and our relationships and the behavior that emerges from those. So I think that creates a rather different response to a criminal rather than saying, right, this is your fault, you've made a bad choice, you must punish for it. It's saying, well, you have behaved behaved in this bad way. It's a product of a complex amalgam, including ourselves, um, that we've been involved in creating the society which has contributed to you behaving in this way. And so I think that creates a different kind of relationship with with the offender, Um, uh, one where we have to acknowledge our own blame alongside the blame that's attached to the offender.
2: And that, that could be a quite radical rethinking of
0: Right at the back there.
2: Yes, I'm very interested in something. So I think we take so much for granted. We don't stop and think how much uh, our way of life, personal way of life, is dependent on what others, past and present, done, doing. Like the wheel is dependent on the ground beneath it. And the, the ground beneath us is what other people have done. Yeah. Think of it: the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the buildings you make, Everything—it's it, hard to think of something that has not been done by others, people, doesn't mm-hmm. involve others. Yeah. It's the whole social construct. Yeah. Okay, so i would got to introduce a note of solidarity. Who do you think? You have to. You feel you have to, or you should feel you have to thank someone, because it's good for them to know, and it's good for you to say thank you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah.
4: Thanks. It was really interesting. I wanted to ask. understand it um, fully when you're talking about some the very classic liberal rights like property and contract, as you said, they're found quite contrary to this principle of you know, challenging power distributions um, but I wanted to ask a bit more for example in relation to the right to liberty, which is obviously there to protect against primarily against arbitrary detention and that's experienced as for, for people who, you know, traditionally more vulnerable, or a new categorization, and um, people who are less well resourced to cope with vulnerability will generally.
2: Well, um,
1: yes, yeah, so at least with, I think i the, the sort of language of rights, I think we can still keep with. Um, we might need to slightly recast them in relational terms. Um, so the idea of, of, of liberty, for example, is an interesting one. I don't know if you've come across dolls, the, the deprivation yeah. of liberty safeguards, yeah. So here, the, the difficulty the courts have been, and the law has been struggling, is with people who are dependent on others to, uh, to, to be looked after. So there's a really interesting case about um, uh, uh, a young man who was severely disabled who was locked in his bedroom at night by his parents who were looking, looking after him um, and there were well, two reasons one was he would otherwise get out of his bedroom and eat all the food in the freezer and make himself really ill um, so they wanted to stop him doing that but also they were just completely exhausted and they just needed some sleep um, so he was locked in his room he didn't seem particularly distressed by it and it was interesting when it came to the judge the judge said well there is a sense in which he's sort of been deprived of his liberty but actually he's being wonderfully careful by these parents they're just doing the most amazing job but to do that, they need to get some sleep. And yes, there is a sense in which, uh, sort of in, a, in a sort of technical way, it's a deprivation of liberty, actually looking at the relationship between the parents and uh, this young man, uh, this is great for him. It's a really good uh, arrangement. And this is a necessary part of that. Um, so I think there's an example of where we have to be a little bit careful about sort of taking rights out of their uh, relational context. Um, Yes, I think we we could imagine rights where the ultimate aim is to enhance good caring relationships could be useful and good.
0: Sorry, I see a couple more at the back. So yeah. just In the blue, yeah. Um i just play example of the man who didn't want to do with other yeah.
4: Oh yes. On that kind of caring relationship, would like in the scenario where they require medical treatment in order to not harm somebody else, either in a yeah. serious way or a very minor
1: right. way, right. and where the kind of balance in that case would lie its choice. And it the yeah. So I. Th- so I think I think there you obviously you'd have to take into account the impact on. Uh, on others, and that would be part of looking at the sort of relation. The, we were talking earlier about relational autonomy and the impact of the, the, that. We like to think I make my decision for myself, but actually the decision is not going to just affect yourself. It's going to affect those around you. And that, this would be another example of that. Um, and um, I think it would be hard to see that would be in his best interest to, to leave him harming other people.
6: Yeah. I
4: really
5: appreciate the concept, um, and I, would, you know, of course, would love to see it. But my question is more on the practicalities. <laughs> how do you see this? I mean, how do you see? It?
1: Well, I think we we are seeing it in various ways, which is the criminal law, with sort of the idea of restorative justice. Now, there's, there's there's problems with that, but I think there are some ways in which restorative justice, trying to reconnect and recreate relationships, is good. Um, there's the law on. Um, a the, the, the lot of family law is changing towards more of a try media, mediation approach to try and look forward to create relationships that can be ongoing. I think that kind of thing is good. Um, and um give you one, one other example in, in the medical law context in relation to very sick babies and something like the Charlie Gard case, which we've had, where um, do you, what do you do? Do you turn the machine off or not? Um, in the past, what we used to have is the court saying, right, yes, the machine should be switched off, or no, the machine should, 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 be, should be kept on. But increasingly in recent years, the judges have been more, more wanting to say, look, go away and talk about this more. Parents and the, the medics will, will give you some resources to try and do this. Here are some pointers we'll give you. Um, here are some things that we think are important for you to think about. Um, so it's an interesting use of law there. It's not the judge saying this is what it's going to be. It's the judge saying, let me give you some tools and try and help you people who are in disagreements try and find a solution you can reach together. Um, it's a different kind of law, but but I think it's quite a promising way of looking at looking at law. And what do you think the underlying mechanisms that are producing these changes are and how can you perpetuate these, these changes? Well... Ironically, I think it's partly the vulnerability, judges recognising their own vulnerability. Um, and um, judges recognising, actually, I don't know the answer. Um, so one of the most moving experiences I had was a, a judge who had to deal with uh, an adoption case where a child had been adopted um, because the parents were uh, found to have uh, abused the children. Um, five years later... The ju- they discovered that a terrible mistake had been by- made by the doctors. They'd misread the evidence completely, they'd reassessed it, and actually the parents hadn't done anything wrong. The child had an unusual medical condition which had caused the broken bones. It wasn't the parents. And uh, the judge then had to decide, what do I do? Do I then take the children away from the adopters when they're really, really happy and return them to the birth parents? Or do I keep them with the adopters and the birth parents who just have to say, I'm terribly sorry, it was an awful mistake? Uh, and the judge was uh, speaking at a, a lecture the, the day after he'd given the, the judgment. Uh, and he suddenly stopped and burst into tears and said, I just found that so hard. Um, and I think that sort of human face of, of, of the judge actually recognizing something like that, that there's not an easy answer. Yeah, it's not awesome. just. Mm. Um, so the, the children should stay where they were. Mm, wow. um, the, the, the children were thriving with the adoptive parents and were. Were very happy. Um, so that's what he decided. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing that again more and more I think the, the judge is acknowledging that there's not always an easy solution and therefore the judge sort of coming down from upon high and saying it shall be so. And we're seeing quite slightly less. Again
5: okay, I think one more and then yep. It was the follow-up actual, the same conversation. I think the problem is, we look at our leaders and at people that are strong people that have enough capacity to make decisions for others. So, either presidents, ministers, judges, um, deputy directors, or in firms, obviously, they are parallel to each other. But yeah. when we are uh, looking up to them, we want them to be the best, yeah. the least vulnerable, therefore capable of taking a decision for us. Yeah. And we expect <laughs> them to be least vulnerable to not have decision-making. Um, so what I really liked about your presentation is that it showed that maybe the problem is not in the necessarily just the empowerment of the vulnerable, but the vulnerable The vulnerabilization of the powerful. Right. If we could undermine in some way, of, I don't mean it as negative, but if we could undermine that authority and create vulnerability, then the processes yeah. of decision making, or of taking those important decisions, for example, locking someone, for example, in jail, should not be someone a person's decision, uh, yeah. or should not ever be really a decision to do. That should be a restorative process that many people uh, accountable. That yeah.
6: That yeah,
1: that's that, that's really good. And can I just add one other example to it? Was a really good list you gave, and that's parents. Yeah. Um, I once had a, was given a five-minute slot at the end of a conference on parenting to, to, to give five minutes of closing remarks. And I spent the five minutes going through all the ways my children had parented me that morning. And I think we often overlook the way that you know, parents are used to, used to sort of looking after their children and doing things for them, but actually children do an awful lot for parents as well. Um, so I think there's another example of, sort of breaking down that assumption you have the sort of authority power figure and then the other person who must, uh, must obey.
0: Yes, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have two small children myself who, who, who are only too attuned to where vulnerability lies uh, sometimes. Um, but anyway, uh, we leave it there. The wine is getting warm. Um, just before we, we uh, thank uh, for, uh, Professor Herring for one last time, just to remind you of our um, next seminar, which is going to be next week, same time, Uh, same place and as I said at the start it's narratives of vulnerability, rethinking stories about the figure of the refugee in Europe and I think there will be perhaps a lot of crossover of ideas between this this discussion and that one so hopefully we will see some of you there. So um, as I say if we uh, thank our speaker thank you very much.